We recently finished our journey through the book of Exodus, and as promised, we've doubled back to take a more narrow look at the Ten Commandments, which we've set our perspectives on, the whole law of God. We said that each commandment is showing us how to love God from a different angle. Uh, We've thought of it this way, that the Ten Commandments are like major arteries that are all part of the same system, that they share the same blood that's pumped by the same heart, so that to break one is to break all of them, right? If all the arteries are kept healthy, the blood flows and the heart beats, but if we just nick one of those major arteries, the blood escapes and the heart stops beating. And our point in sharing that illustration is to show that the Ten Commandments are distinct and yet they are part of the same whole. They form a unity in that they show us God's heart. And they also show us our own hearts in light of God's. They show us our guilt in light of God's perfectly holy character. They show us God's grace as they drive us to God's Savior. And they show us how to live a life of gratitude in response to that grace. They teach us how to love God back. And it's God's powerful love for us that compels us to view these ten words romantically. It is still astonishing to the Christian to look back at the Ten Commandments and to see how woefully short we fall of keeping them perfectly. And to be reminded that God so loved us that He became a man so that He could live a perfect life and keep the law in our place. So that He could die a death in our place. And so that He could raise from the dead in order to secure our place in his presence. It is in response to this work of God in the gospel that we now say to him, your wish is my command. Because we are intoxicated with the love of God, we view the law as something that is lovely, that shows us how to love God back. We are as the happy man of Psalm 1, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day in night. Psalm 119.97 captures our feelings about God's instruction. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. We are Jesus' people and we long to know him better and more deeply so that we might love him more deeply and better. And so once more this morning, we're honing in on one of these Ten Commandments. We're on the third one, and and as I told you last week, one of my goals in working through this series is to help us learn all of the Ten Commandments. And so we learned some hand signals. Those of you that went home and studied will be able to tell in just a minute. But if you remember, we're going to go through them again. We had the first commandment. We held up one finger, and we said, have no other gods beside me. There's only one God, and he's not going to have any other gods beside him. And I'm watching to see if you did your homework. Now you can hold up two like this. We do the two, and we have, this is commandment number two, and that looks a little bit like a wolf pack thing. We said, don't make any idols or bow down to and worship them. All right, now we're going to learn the third one is you can do this with the three fingers. Um, if you're a Hunger Games fan, you remember Katniss always does this number here. She kisses her fingers and like holds it up. It's like a little symbol. But this is don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't misuse the Lord's name. And so you remember the third commandment. So you know three of the commandments now, and you've got them on your fingers. It's not, I don't know if it's a mnemonic device or not. I should research this. Uh, but that will help you remember the Ten Commandments. We, we don't want to be people that don't know what our God has told us about himself. And so it's important to know his character as it's revealed in these ten words. 
And so do we. It seems uh, almost childish, but there are aspects and rudimentary elements of our faith that we need to ensure that we know. And they, we use these methods with children because they work. Uh, and I've been excited to learn the commandments along with you. So one God, don't make idols, and then don't take his name in vain. All right, we're well on our way. We're going to be in verse 7 of chapter 20 this morning. As you turn there, uh, my hope this morning, my main idea, is that you would walk away with the impression of how you might better love God's name. Love God's name is our main idea. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you that you have given us grace upon grace in Jesus Christ our Lord. That we don't deserve to have the great privilege of coming together like this and calling you our God. That we don't deserve to take the name Christian as our own. But because of your grace, you have loved us and you have given us these blessings. Father, we thank you for this. And we pray that as we come underneath of your word, that you would um, teach us what we do not know, that you would use your word to make us more into the people that you have called us to be, that you would help us to ultimately have a um, more vivid and dynamic relationship with you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's context once more. God has drawn the people out of Egypt so he can draw them into relationship with himself. And as they've come across the wilderness, God has met all the people's needs. He turned bitter water sweet. He fed them with the manna daily. And he is um, he brought water forth from a rock. And now he has gathered the people at the foot of Mount Sinai. He's descended on the mountain. It is looking like a consuming fire. It is enveloped in smoke. There are loud trumpet sounds and thunder and lightning, and it is a really scary scene. The text tells us that the mountain trembles, and I imagine that the people's knees were wobbly as God spoke forth from the mountain. It's into the midst of this conversation that we now step and pick up at verse 7, where we read, Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Uh, If you like the old English, it goes this way. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. To, To use the Lord's name in vain is to misuse it or to empty it of its meaning, to use it falsely in a way uh, that makes God seem as if he were worthless. That's what both translations are getting at. But, but before we talk about the misuse of God's name, we need to talk about what God's name is and what God's name does. And, and two things mainly that I want to point out. God's name distinguishes him and it describes him. Our names function in a similar way, like your name distinguishes you. So if I call out to you, you know that I'm talking to you. So I could say, hey, Carrie, and Carrie automatically knows. He's resisting the urge to look up at me, right? Like he, he knows that I'm distinguishing him from everybody else in the room. Likewise, if I call out to any one of you, right, if I call Tim or Herschel or David, it, it's my way of picking a person out in a crowd. This is how names function. It sets you apart. It distinguishes you from everybody else. Uh, our names just like God's, describe us as well, sometimes in a very literal sense, as in the case of the name Cameron, which means crooked or bent of nose. 
So if you know anybody named Cameron, that's what their name means. Uh, their parents didn't do a great job on that one, but we'll, we'll let it slide. Uh, sometimes we use names that are figurative, right? Phoebe, which means bright or radiant. Sometimes names are an expression of the hopes of the parent. Like uh, Brianna means strong. Parents hope that the child grows out to be strong. Uh, my own kid's name, Owen, means young or mighty warrior. I don't know that we hope that he becomes a mighty warrior, but, but that like, sometimes encapsulates their hope. Uh, Abraham's name in Scripture means father of a multitude. And so you can see that, that naming is it's a big deal. Right? If you don't believe me, um, you'll know when you have a kid one day, and you have to name that child, right? Uh, or if you just Google baby names, the myriad of results you get is staggering. It's almost overwhelming, right? And if you are a parent, you've had the baby books and read through the hundreds and hundreds of names and come to the end of the book and go, none of these work. Can't settle on one. Uh, and if you're like me, you're on the way to the hospital with your spouse and go, I guess we really should pick a name, huh? I, really, I wanted to name my boys just awesome things. Boris, uh, Chuck Norris, Chainsaw was a suggestion. I thought this will lead to strength and success. Uh, Chelsea thought it would lead to their misery, and so I lost out. Um, and sometimes names do guarantee misery, right? I, I heard a, a story this week when I was thinking of names and, and, and re- researching this. And, and th- there was a guy named Odd. His name was Odd, and it actually did lead to just a whole bunch of problems in his life. He, he ended up the odd man out all the time, uh, and despite his success, he, he was a successful lawyer, he always felt alienated from his peers, and it came to the point where he began to loathe his name. Uh, to the extent that he decided when he died, he made provision that on the tombstone his name wouldn't be there, but instead the inscription, Here lies an honest lawyer. Now when people pass by, they look to themselves and think, well, isn't that odd? (laughs) Names distinguish us, and they're given to us by someone who has authority over us, namely our parents. However, for for most of us in the West, we, we don't think of our names as anything more than a label, We think of our name as something we have, not something we are. But for the Hebrews, the name was inseparable from the person and expressed a person's inward identity. This is really important because God's name in the Bible represents his entire reputation. Literary term for this type of speech is is synecdoche. It's where one part stands for the whole. And so an example of a synecdoche that you use uh, that you probably never realized, if you say, there were a lot of new faces at the meeting today, you've just used a synecdoche, right? It's one part represents the whole. There's not a, you don't mean, hey, there are a bunch of disembodied faces in the new meeting today just floating around. No, you mean there were a whole bunch of new people there, and you use the word their faces to represent the whole person. Likewise, God's name represents his whole person. God's name represents his whole identity. God's name is tantamount to God himself. And noticeably, importantly, in contrast to us, no one gives God his name. He names himself. He distinguishes himself. He describes himself in his name. And the name Yahweh does brim brim with meaning. It designates God as the one true God. It highlights his self-existent and self-sustaining nature. I mean, have you ever thought of what it means for God to sustain the cosmos moment by moment? 
Like in the same way you or I um, maintain or sustain a musical note, right? You just, ah, and as long as you make that noise with, with your vocal cords or whatever, I'm not really sure how it happens, uh, but as long as you sustain that volume, that musical note exists. But as soon as you stop, it goes out of, out of existence. This is how God sustains the universe. So that if he would stop at any moment, the universe would cease to exist. It would collapse in on itself. He tells us this in his name, that he's self-existent, and that he sustains all things. His name's also personal. He gives his personal name to the people. He reveals that he is the God who saves. Remember in that preamble we looked at uh, last week, that God says, I am the God who has saved you out of Egypt, out of slavery. God is identified with his name. To praise him is to praise his name. Glory is due to his name. We are saved for his name's sake. We give thanks to his name. We trust in his name. God redeems us for the sake of his name, his reputation, his glory. God's name is to be loved and treasured, for by it we know him and are saved. God's name is glorious, yet despite this truth, we are prone to misuse it. I think the way we most often think of misusing or taking the Lord's name in vain is through cursing, right? Don't pretend like y'all don't know what I'm talking about. I've heard some of you say some of these things, all right? Might even be guilty myself on occasion, right? But you, you know what I'm talking about. GD, Jesus Christ, uh, the infamous OMG, or Oh My God. These phrases are actually an affront to God. They devalue him because they devalue his name. By employing the name of God to express resentment against a situation or another person is ultimately to express resentment towards God himself. When we use God's name flippantly, we diminish his greatness and evacuate his name of its very meaning. To to shrink God's name to the size of a four-letter word is blasphemy. That's the word the Bible uses for it. And blasphemy is described in Scripture as reviling God's name, despising his name, and cursing his name. And blasphemy, it's kind of a big deal. Uh, as evidence, there's a passage in Leviticus 24, which is probably a story that's unfamiliar for you. It, it doesn't unfamiliar to you. It doesn't show up in the flannel graphs when you're growing up. But this is how it goes. There's a kid. He has an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father, and he gets into a fight in the camp. And we read in Exodus, Exodus Leviticus 24, verse 11, The Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. So at this point, the people arrest him, this kid that was in a fight and cursed. They take him to Moses, and in verse 13, God tells them what to do. Bring the one who has cursed to the outside of the camp, and have all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then have the whole community stone him and tell the Israelites, If anyone curses his God, he will bear the consequences of his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh is to be put to death. The whole community must stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death, whether a foreign resident or a native. Death for cursing God's name? The penalty for the crime corresponds to the greatness of the one who is sinned against. 
God's name is, is holy. It's to be used reverently. It should reflect his holiness. And an unholy use of his name is a misuse of his name. And taking the Lord's name in vain is a serious crime. It's a serious sin. So it results in this young man's death. Yet serious as using the Lord's name as a curse is, uh, it doesn't seem to bother us too much uh, because I think some of us think it's part of our culture, it's not that big of a deal. And then also, um, we can remedy this for the most part, right? We can change our speech. GD becomes, gosh darn it. And Jesus Christ becomes, geez, or as my high school basketball coach used to exclaim often, cheese and crackers. I don't know how he changed it into that exactly. Um, we always got amusement, but he did. Uh, OMG can be changed to, oh, my word, or oh, my stars, as one of my friends put it. I mean, whatever. Right? Problem solved. Not a big deal. We're out from under this command. But I, I don't think so. I think at first, uh, just curtailing our language doesn't solve the problem. Right? Jesus tells us, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when those words are coming out of your mouth, they don't exist in and of themselves. They're, they're the fruit of a root that is growing in the soil of your soul. They express a disregard for the holiness of God's name. Second, we misuse God's name in a bunch of other ways that violate this commandment also. We just don't typically think of them. And cleaning up our language doesn't begin to scratch the surface of our breaking of the third commandment. Uh, remedying the, our cursing uh, is, is a little bit like the person, you've probably seen them, they go to the state fair and they have like deep fried butter, deep fried Oreos, uh, deep fried candy bars, all good things. Uh, giant turkey leg and they have all this stuff in one hand, they've eaten some of it and then they go to the next vendor and they say, I'll take a Diet Coke please. Like, the sugary drink is not your problem, man, all right? Like, the problem is all this other stuff. Like, I'm glad that you're cutting back on calories here. That's important to do. But the deeper issues are these other things that you're eating. Oftentimes, I think when it comes to our lives as Christians or even thinking through how we keep or break these commandments, we take kind of the Diet Coke approach. I mean, we fix what is easiest and most readily observable rather than addressing the larger and deeper issues. So I want to point out two other misuses of God's name during our time together. The first is false prophecy, uh, and the second is a misusing his name in terms of bearing his name and then living out of step with what he is like. So the first uh, variation of misusing God's name is false prophecy. This is um, using God's name to authenticate our own will, right? It's saying God has said when God has not said. Uh, A good example of this is given to us in 1 Kings 13. There is a nameless prophet whom I will refer to as nameless prophet, uh, and he's also called a man of God. And so this man of God announces to King Jeroboam uh, the eventual overthrow of the idolatrous worship in Israel. Jeroboam gets mad at him, and he points a finger at him. He's like, seize him, and his whole hand like withers up and, and dries up. It's really weird. And he's like, hey, pray to God that my hand would come back. Uh, our nameless prophet does that, and then his hand's good to go. And then Jeroboam says in verse 7, he's happy now, says to our nameless prophet, come home with me, refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God replied, if you were to give me half of your house, I still wouldn't go with you. 
and I wouldn't eat bread or drink water in this place. For this is what I was commanded by the word of the Lord. You must not eat bread or drink water or go back the way you came. And so the prophet has back home according to the word of the Lord, and he's so far so good. But then things go really wrong for our nameless prophet. You see, there was an old prophet in the land that had heard our nameless prophet was visiting, and he really liked nameless prophet and wanted him to hang out at his house. And so he sends some people after him. He comes, he catches up to him, and he says, come and stay at my place. Look at what he says in verse 18. I am also a prophet like you. An angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. Bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. The old prophet deceived him. And the man of God went back with him, ate bread in his house and drank water. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And the old prophet cried out to the man of God, our nameless prophet, who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says. Because you rebelled against the command of the Lord and did not keep the command that the Lord your God commanded you, your corpse will never reach the grave of your fathers. So after Nameless Prophet had eaten bread and after he had drunk, the old prophet saddled a donkey for him and had him go back to his homeland. When he left, a lion attacked him along the way and killed him. There's a couple applications here, a couple directions to go. I'm not going to exegete the whole passage. But the first one is, we need to believe God's revelation about himself, right? We need to trust God's word more than we trust any man's word. Here we have a prophet where God speaks to him directly, tells him, don't go back that way, and then he's deceived by somebody else that says, God, God told me that you are to come to my house tonight. And it results in his destruction. One way to love the name of God is by taking the time to get to know what that name means. To know who God is. To know him intimately enough to separate truth from falsehood. Second application, and the one I want to uh, focus more on here, comes from the old prophet. This old prophet is a genuine follower of God. Genuine prophet. But he wants something. And he employs God's name at the expense of the other prophet's life. He says, God told me when God had never spoken. His desire to get his way results in the death of our nameless prophet, whom the rest of the narrative tells us he actually loved. He ends up having himself buried next to his nameless prophet who died because of his lie. It's a big deal in Israel. Here's the point we're driving at. Don't say God told me when he is not. Don't misuse the Lord's name to authenticate or justify your own will. Many of us have been guilty of doing this. And some of the common ways uh, I've seen Christians use God's name to justify their own desires are uh, typically in relationships. I mean, maybe you've had this experience. But in college kids, all the time, uh, they, they'll come back and report, oh, he or she said to me, look, we've been in a relationship for a while and, and I like you. But God's just told me recently that I need to be single. He's really calling me to singleness. And, and so they kind of use God as the excuse. Instead of saying something like, look, I like you, but not good enough to marry you. And so thanks for the dates, thanks for the memories, um, but let's go our separate ways, right? We use the, the God card. Or the inverse of this, God told me that we should get married. And then somebody's like, oh no, 
feel so, all this pressure. God told you we should get married. I don't have another choice. I mean, who can, who can argue with God? I've also heard people say, God told me to change jobs, to justify jobs change, instead of saying, you know, I really don't like my job right now. I'm looking to get into something else. I think God might be calling me somewhere else. Some use God's name to serve their political agendas. God told me that, insert the name of your preferred political candidate, God told me that my candidate is his chosen candidate and that anyone who doesn't vote for him is in sin. Some even use God's name as an excuse to commit sin. God told me I don't need to grow, I don't need to join a church to grow in my faith. I can just meet with him all on my own. God told me to leave my spouse. Or God told me it was okay to have premarital sex with my boyfriend or girlfriend because we're married in our hearts after all, and that's all that counts. I think sadly, in evangelicalism, God told me has become sort of a spiritual trump card so that to oppose the will of the person who employs it is to oppose God himself. To use God's name in this way to validate your own will is a breach of the third commandment. Bottom line here is don't use God's name to justify your own will. Don't say God has said when it's you who are saying. I do want to make something clear here, though, just in case I'm misunderstood, which happens sometimes. God still leads and speaks to us through his word and through prayer. Our relationship with God is um, dynamic. It is deeply personal. But we, ought, so, but we ought not say God has told me definitively because we are prone to misunderstand. I think we do better to say something like, uh, as far as I can tell through the word, through the study of the word and prayer and counsel, or as far as I can tell God is leading me in this direction, or I think God is calling me to this, uh, are all better ways to describe what God is doing in our life versus God told me definitively this is what it is. And, and indeed, we do can get very confused about this, but God hasn't, he's told us to understand what his will is, and he hasn't left us without resources to figure that out. I'm really thankful that God has provided us with a community in which we can evaluate how we are hearing him. Right? God has called us uh, into a personal relationship with him, but even though our relationship with God is personal, it is never private. God doesn't convert or call any of us in a vacuum. He not only brings us into relationship with himself, but also into relationship with his people. Friends, your church family, this church family, is a great safeguard against your misunderstanding or misapplying of God's will in your life. For example, uh, this is just the most immediate example to me, after I graduated from seminary, uh, I guess I hadn't graduated yet, but I'd been applying for jobs and talked with churches and I visited you all here and I felt like God was calling me to serve as your pastor, um, to verify that calling, to, to make sure I was understanding the Lord correctly. I, I leaned on others throughout the process to make my calling sure. Uh, first thing was first, I talked to my wife because here's the, the dirty truth about the fact. If I feel called somewhere and my wife doesn't, I'm not called, <laughs> right? Because she has to go too. So that, that test got passed. Uh, next, we, we consulted friends and family and other members of our church. 
Lastly, I went before uh, the elders of our church. These are men who, while I was at seminary, had identified in me uh, gifts for ministry. They'd been cultivating those gifts to that end. And so they, they had one of the two final says about whether or not I would end up here. Had they told Chelsea and I, uh, no, we don't think that's a good situation for you, don't take the position, uh, we would have submitted to them. We would have listened to their wisdom because we had placed them in spiritual authority over us as our elders. And we, we would have stayed put in Wake Forest. The final say, ultimately, after all those other things had happened, came from you all. When you decided to confirm my calling as your pastorate by saying, hey, come be our pastor. All of these things worked together to affirm God's will in my life. And the point I'm trying to make is that I didn't uh, make, make a decision all on my own about what I thought God was saying to me. God had placed me in healthy community with other Christians so that I could be helped to make sure I was hearing him rightly. Because as people, uh, I think all of us have had this experience, our hearts can often lead us in wrong directions. We might really think something is a good idea for us, but when someone else steps in and says, actually, you haven't thought of it this way, uh, that might not be the best for you, it can be really helpful. And so we need to make use of the resources God has given to us. When trying to determine what God's will is in your life, his calling for you, it's paramount that you read the scriptures, pray, and trust the counsel of the believers God has placed you among. And I think just too easily and too often we forget that Christianity is not me and Jesus. It's we and Jesus. We are the body of Christ, and we represent him to the world and to one another. Which brings us to another way uh, that we misuse the Lord's name or take it in vain. And that's when we misrepresent him. We usually think of the third commandment uh, strictly in terms of a commandment about language. And it certainly that's part of our obligation, as we've already said. But the verb used in the commandment doesn't mean to speak, right? It means to lift up or to bear or to carry. I, hope that, I think that helps us to see um, we can carry the Lord's name, we can take the Lord's name, misuse it by calling ourselves Christians and then acting in ways that are patently unchristian. Uh, John Frame says it this way, uh, the commandment is not only about speaking God's name, but about bearing it in our lives. Taking God's name is done not only by those who use it in speech, but also by those who identify as his people. People who have publicly declared themselves followers of Christ, been affirmed in that declaration by a local church, are to represent God to the world. They're to honor him and exalt his reputation by living in a way that honors him. God's name is attached to us. His, his reputation is attached to those who profess to follow him. Think of it this way. It's, it's like siblings growing up in the same school system. Uh, at every, I, I, this happened with me and my sister. I'm older than her. And so at every grade level, uh, my sister encountered teachers that would like her or not like her based on their experience with me. She inherited my reputation. And so some were really excited. You're Justin Braun's sister? Oh, he was such a great student. What a great influence. How blessed you are to have such a great big brother. Some were not so excited. Oh, you're Justin Braun's sister. Well, that's, uh, that's great. 
My sister is still, even at college, she's one of the same college as me. People would identify her as Justin Braun's sister. Even recently now, she lives in a new place. She's married, has a new last name. She met somebody, and they said, you're Justin Braun's sister. And she kind of stomped her feet. No, I can't get out from under this. I feel bad for her. Here's the point. Christians share God's name and reputation. You share God's name and reputation. You are, as Paul says it, an ambassador. Right? This is how he says it in 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 18. Everything is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. An ambassador is an accredited diplomat sent by a country as its official representative to a foreign country. When we take Jesus' name, when we become Christians, we also become ambassadors. And to stick to the metaphor, God's kingdom or our home country is, is not of this world. We're all foreigners here. And local churches are embassies or outposts of God's kingdom. They do two things typically. Uh, they affirm us as citizens in God's kingdom. And they assign us as ambassadors for that kingdom. And so this truth, I think, helps us understand the importance of church membership. Right? We've said it many times now. The local church is the authority that God has established on earth to affirm and give shape to both my Christianity and yours. When we accept someone into church membership, we are endorsing their Christianity. We are saying to one another and to the world, this is what Jesus looks like. That's a big deal. That's why when we accept someone into membership, we want to ensure that they are a Christian, that they understand the gospel, and are committed to its implications. We want to avoid assuring non-Christians of their salvation, and we want to avoid defaming the name of Jesus. The reputation of Jesus' name is so important to us that we commit ourselves to correcting one another and being corrected by one another through that uh, lovely process we call church discipline that I hope is happening at lower levels all the time. That we are saying this is sin. Repent, brother. Repent, sister. Chelsea practices it on me every day at home. I have to do a lot of repenting. I'm thankful for that. Not always at the time. But it's something we submit ourselves to throughout the entirety of our Christian lives because we want to make our call, our election to Christ, sure and certain. And church discipline really is one of the keys to living the Christian life well. We've said it before this way. It's aimed at the spiritual rescue of individuals, restoring them to Christ, saying, stop walking in unrepentant sin, come back to Christ. And it's also aimed at protecting the name of Jesus, right? Our hope is always that whomever is the offending party, whoever's caught in sin will be led to repentance. But, but we know not everybody is going to repent. 
And that at some point in time, uh, we have to say, we can no longer affirm this person's Christianity and put them out from the church to, so that we make a clear statement. This person does not represent Jesus. They're not living like Jesus. They're unrepentant. So we guard Jesus' name by keeping those who wrongly bear it out of fellowship with us. Let me be clear here. This isn't a call to perfection. Right? It, it's a call to give and accept loving correction so that we all might together grow in Christ-likeness and be good ambassadors for him. None of us should be strangers to uh, confession and repentance. I think Luther rightly said that the whole of the Christian life is repentance. We are talking about it this morning in Sunday school. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is repentance. The unrepentant prove themselves to wrongly bear Jesus' name if they take it. But also, us who repent, those who are members of churches, we, we, we have to repent because we're sinners. Because there are times when even though we have the name Christian, we live in ways that are unchristian. We fail to live perfectly and we break the third commandment in this way. See, whenever we sin, whenever we break God's covenant, we bring dishonor on the name of God that we bear. We injure his reputation. We injure his good name. You see, any sin is a violation of the third commandment. We call ourselves Christians, and then we live in a way that is unchristian. And so to sin is to defame the name of Christ. We are all third commandment breakers. We're all blasphemers which is problematic if you look at the, the second half of verse 7 in Exodus chapter 20. It says, Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I mean, how does this fit together with Jesus' words in Mark 3.28? God will not leave him unpunished. And then Jesus says in Mark 3.28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. How does this square with what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13-15, through 15, when he writes, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. How does God keep his word to punish those who have misused his name and to be a God who loves and forgives? How is Jesus able to save blasphemous sinners like us? By bearing our name and allowing us to bear his name. See, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are united to him by faith, and you take his name as your own. Just like a, a wife takes the name of her husband. You come under his protection. All that is his, all the infinite riches that are in his bank account go into yours. Whereas before you were way in the red, infinitely so. On the cross, Jesus takes the name of every person who will put their faith in him as his own. And he takes their punishment. 
He takes your punishment. Your name is graven on his hands. It's written on his heart. And while he stands in heaven evermore, no one can tell you to depart the presence of the Father because he has paid for your sin. Indeed, Exodus 20 verse 7 is true in its entirety. Those who blaspheme the name of the Lord will indeed be punished. If we put our faith in Christ, it's been punished. The words of Galatians 2.20 are true. You have been crucified with Christ. And you also stand with Christ before the Father. He takes all of the wrath that we deserve and we get all of the blessing that he deserves. Because on the cross, he became a curse for us. The one whose name we blasphemed gives us his name so that we get to enjoy his blessing. That's beautiful. And it shows us what the law is meant to do. At the end of the day, the the law isn't designed to show us what we must do to be saved, but to show us who we must trust to be saved and how to love him back. Romans 10.4 is great. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, the law shows us God's perfect character. It shows us that we are guilty and in need of a Savior. But it also shows us God's grace. It shows us that God has provided us a Savior. And it drives us to Him. His name is Jesus. And when we come to Him, we see in the law an opportunity to offer our gratitude back to God as obedience. It's affectionate and loving obedience. The law then becomes not something that condemns, but something we're free to obey as a way to love our God and Father back. Not something that's restrictive, but freeing. Something that helps us to grow in our intimacy with God. All because Jesus bore our sins for us. And he kept the third commandment for us. He was righteous where we weren't righteous. He took our punishment where we deserved punishment. Jesus fulfills the third commandment for us. He never blasphemed. His is the name that is above every name. His is the name that every knee will bow. His is the name to which uh, every knee in heaven and on earth will bow to. His is the name that every tongue will confess as Lord. His is the name that is raised to the glory of God the Father. His is the name that is above every name. It's the name, the only name by which we can be saved. His name is Jesus. And he has lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died so that we could take his name as our own and enjoy fellowship with God. It's in response to that gospel that we want to love his name Christian, love his name more deeply today. And if you don't know Jesus, we encourage you to take his name as your own by faith. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have chosen to make yourself known so that we might be known by you. Lord, we pray that... um, we would not take this grace lightly. Pray that your name and the salvation we enjoy in Christ wouldn't be something we approach flippantly, 
but with reverence and rejoicing. Father, we thank you for uh, the law that shows us our need for Christ. Thank you for the gospel that shows us how Jesus has met that need. And we thank you that your word still proves a great way to show us how to love you back in response to the grace we've received. Thank you, Father, for this word. Great is your faithfulness and great is your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.